0: Well, everyone, welcome to World at War Comics. I have a very special guest today, Mr. Jim Zub, writer extraordinaire. I mean, you... I, I can spend like the next five minutes talking about all the different things from video games to animation to yeah. um, obviously comic books. Uh, we just got done talking about your your list of things that you've accomplished within the comic world and all the big publishers. So you, you've done a lot, Jim. I appreciate you spending a few moments with me today to talk about some of the most up to date things that you're working on now. And then let's talk a little bit about that amazing history that you are putting together over your lifetime in comics, if that's OK.
1: Thanks, man. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the enthusiasm. Honestly, uh, it's a it's a real dream job. It's a joy to be able to do this, and to get to work on both you know obviously original creator owned stuff that I've done over the years, but getting to contribute to a lot of really really cool properties, stuff that I loved growing up, stuff that I've become a fan of over the years, and to have readers respond to it. That is the thing that makes the big difference when. The readership is there and when they're pumped and when they're excited and they let publishers know that they like what i'm doing then more opportunities come my way so it's just been a, a wonderful ride uh and and right now like 2024 i feel like i'm in one of the best spots i've ever been in it's uh it's an absolute joy
0: i mean i think that's so encouraging especially when you've been in the same industry for a little while um you've kind of accomplished a lot of different things and it's one thing for someone to be excited about whatever you're writing right now, but to see that you're excited about what you're doing right now, even though you've been doing sure. you, I think that also as a fan makes us happy too, because it comes across in the writing, right? You could feel absolutely
1: passion yeah. always comes across on the page. If you're working with an art team that is pumped for what they're doing, you know, it's one of the most crucial parts of it. Um so many times because the writer tends to be the one that's on the series throughout and the art teams can change from time to time, you know, I'll get attributed with, you know, it's Jim's run on champions or, Oh, you know, Jim does Dungeons and Dragons. And it's like nothing happens without that art team and the passion and the time that they're pouring into it. And so for me, the first step in any kind of project is, is talking to the art team and communicating with them and getting a feel for what aspects of this they're most excited about if it's a team book, like something, you know, in the superhero space, what characters on this team are you most excited to draw? What kind of stuff do you want to see there on the page? Because I want to lean into those strengths. I want everyone to see the best of what you can bring. And I know that that momentum is going to carry me forward as much as it carries them forward. And that collaborative process is what makes comics so special, you know? Like, uh, don't get me wrong, I like reading books and stuff, but prose is like that singular authorial voice and that's very cool. But when we're working as a creative team and we all get to collaborate and make something even stronger together, that is just one of the coolest feelings.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I could tell you as a reader, um, you could tell when the writer and maybe the artist team are not super close and maybe they're not on the same page, right? Um, Not
1: that the comes across good. I'm not here to call it specific projects. I've had a few of them over the years where you're just like, you're moving in different directions. Or one of the tough things can be if you're given an assignment and an art team hasn't been hired yet. And so you're kind of writing in the void. You're writing the script, hopeful that the people that are going to be hired on the other end are going to get to execute that vision, but it's harder. It's harder to see it in your mind. It's harder to know what kind of things that they're going to enjoy. And it feels very much when you get into those unfortunate situations, it feels a bit more factory-like where you're like, well, here's a story, I hope you like it. And that's not a situation you want to put yourself into. You always want to be in that sense of, okay, we are the team, we've got this singular goal and we're all going to try and make the best damn thing we can, you know? Yeah,
0: absolutely. And uh, yeah, it it makes for such an amazing experience as a reader too when all those things kind of combine. Can you go into a little bit, Before we kind of go back into your history, can you kind of talk about what that looks like with your art team, your letter, the colorist, like what kind, what does that communication look like that back and forth? Is it very detailed or does it depend on the artist?
1: I mean, yeah, it depends on the, on the team, right? So typically I would do what's called full script and that's pretty standard across the industry nowadays where you are writing a breakdown of an issue. So obviously I do the outline and I pitch it to the editor and the publisher. And I say, this is our plan going forward. Um, in this issue, these things are gonna happen. And and you, all the main plot points are kind of played out. If you've been on a book for a while, if you've got a really good working relationship with an editor, more of that can be verbal or it can be more kind of brief. But uh, if you're coming new into a project, it's gonna be pretty extensive. You're trying to prove your bona fides and just be like, this is gonna go this way. Here's the big payoffs, here's how we set it up, and here's how it's gonna go. Then once that's approved, I'm writing out a full script for the artist. And that is a breakdown of on this page, you know, there is a rundown of usually the number of panels, what happens in each of those panels, and any text call outs. So whether those are captions or, you know, dialogue that are happening on the page, sometimes even the sound effects are, you know, called out there as well. But that's not the end of the process. It's not just a a one-way kind of system. The the script goes out to the artist, they're gonna do those page roughs. And sometimes they'll combine panels or they'll change up actions or they'll stage things differently. And that's good. That's the whole point of the collaborative process. As it kind of bats back and forth, editorial's involved, I'm involved. Even the, you know, the colorist and the letterer may have stuff to say at that stage as we're all kind of getting input and in how it's gonna come together. The line art gets finished while the book is, usually while the book is going through colors, I'm doing a final pass on the script to make sure that the dialogue is going to fit, that it's the most appropriate for the visuals that are going to be on each of those pages. The lettering gets finished as the colors are getting done. And if it's something like a monthly book, that can be right to the line, like in terms of print deadlines and stuff. I don't think people in, when I've worked with traditional publishers in the prose space or, you know, um, my wife and I do a series of books called The Young Adventurer's Guides for Dungeons and Dragons. And those are done with an imprint of Random House. And that's very traditional kind of publishing. And they're used to like, we're finishing the books eight months before the book you know, is gonna be released to the public, and all the editorials finished, everything on the book is done. When I explain to them the shipping schedules and the printing schedules on comics, their heads spin, because they can't believe how kind of breakneck it can be that we're turning around these books you know, every four weeks. And, and if it's the Christmas holidays, we're cramming it all together right up against you know the line and and trying to make sure this stuff can be done and i've done edits and adjustments on a book you know hours before it goes to press and you're just like that's that's the nature of comics it, it is a uh, you know pressure cooker kind of situation no wonder you're stressing book. out at dinner jim yeah well you're just like <laughs> you're trying to find the right you know you're you trying to make sure that this thing is as good as it can be. And that monthly schedule is relentless. And so, you know, the few times I've had the kind of greater lead time, it's awesome. It's really nice to have, but there is some, there is a, a, a spontaneous kind of excitement to knowing that, man, we just, we finalize this thing It's going to press in like four weeks. You're going to see it on the stands and let's go, let's get that feedback from the readership and let's really dig into the thing. So uh, I like it. I like the, the, energy of it, you know, my inbox is a constant sort of flow because again, you're not just writing a script. It's like every stage of that production, you're, you know, while I'm writing say two or three issues ahead of time, the roughs are coming in for, you know, the previous issue and the colors are getting finalized for another issue and the line art and the lettering. So you're not just looking at one issue. If it's a monthly book, I'm looking at five or six issues at various stages of production. And then when it moves to the next stage, there's another one coming in the front door, you know? Uh, on a mini series, that's pretty rapid. You're just like, oh, I'm kind of looking at every issue of the mini series simultaneously. And then as each one gets done, we send it off. The mini series is done and you're like, pooh, all right, finished. But like monthly is a marathon. That's the whole purpose. You know, you, you are not just thinking now, you're thinking six months, eight months from now, what is the story gonna be? How are we foreshadowing these things? How are we setting it up? You know, do we have the same art team consistently throughout? Hopefully, but if not, are we hiring people for that next arc? Are we dealing with everything from covers to ad copy to all those other things while the book's getting done, while you're writing on the constant basis? And I know for people who haven't been in the business before, when I describe it to them, they're like, how does that even work? And you're like, well, it's, it's imagine you're on a train and it can't stop and we're throwing tracks down in front you know and uh it's uh it's invigorating <laughs> you know and uh, Good way to put it's it. sometimes ridiculous and and but there's some there's an energy to it and you kind of get used to it and i don't know maybe yeah. it's just like a stockholm syndrome you just get so used to it you're like well that's how we do it here <laughs> it's fun i
0: could see something like that being a little addictive too right that kind of rush that you get yeah. uh, putting out something every single month. And then when there is a lull where you're maybe not on an ongoing,
1: oh, you're totally. probably trying to
0: figure out what do I do? What do I do, right?
1: You know, I know people who they've moved into the traditional publishing space. They're doing like a graphic novel. So first of all, they're doing whatever, over a hundred pages of material all at once. And then it goes to the book market where it's gonna be finalized. And then eight, 10, 12 months later is the release. And so they're like, I've been working on this graphic novel. People aren't gonna see it for a year and a half And they're like, oh, you know, the tension of like, why I want to show everyone everything because you're used to this, you know, monthly explosion. And so it's different. (laughs) They're all different kind of things. Don't get me wrong. I'm all up for lead time. I like having the space where we can have it. And we actually, when the Marvel run of Conan ended, for example, there was over a year between the end of that run and our launch. Mm -hmm. And that was very much by design because- we wanted, first of all, to be able to plan things out over a longer term. We wanted to be able to, you don't miss something until you know it's gone. You know what I mean? Like we wanted to give people a little bit of a breath and kind of go, okay, that, you know, second era of Marvel has ended and we're going to slowly build up anticipation and we're going to tease stuff out. And then when it comes out and we launched a uh, San Diego comic-con, you know, in 2023, the, the fever pitch we've been able to build since, you know, um, the free comic day issue we did in May and then the launch in, in late July was just like, it was awesome. It was such a cool feeling that people were getting pumped for it and start to see things. In that little gap, I was hearing like, why aren't we hearing more about Conan? And I'm just, just wait, just wait, you know, we got this, <laughs> oh, it's going to be cool. Yeah. And it gave us more space to be able to analyze and to build up a larger, I think the the kind of mythic structure that I've been really wanting to deliver on the series. And uh, obviously give the art team the maximum amount of time to deliver quality. And, and that's what we've been trying to do with that book. And so as now we're deep into the monthly explosion. And so it's sort of the best of both worlds where we had that big buildup. We did all the planning that we needed to do. And now it's this relentless attack that we are carrying forth. And, you know, it could be stressful at times, but people are loving the book. And that's the best case scenario. That's why you do this stuff.
0: You know, living in both worlds, the the month a month on the comic side, but then working with your wife um, with these longer lead times on Dungeons yeah. and Dragons, does um the the longer lead time that process does that help on the month to month or vice versa? Like does one make you better at the other?
1: I mean, they're all different creative. Yeah projects right like every project's got its own strengths and weaknesses every project's got its own kind of challenges that you work your way into it and in some cases the nice thing is is that you get used to on the monthly stuff you get used to turning things around you know quicker you get you have to think a little bit more on your feet you have to be a little bit more kind of spontaneous in that way and with the longer term stuff you've got these larger you know Dungeons and Dragons is obviously a huge brand especially right now yeah. we're in the middle of the 50th anniversary of dnd here in 2024 and so our ability to sort of plan out and go okay you know the books that are coming out here in 2024 we wrote them in 2022 or early 2023 and it's like great we know where the brand's going to be at we know all these other kind of big movements and how these things are going to kind of come together and you want to be able to long-term plan as much as possible with comics as well But having that ability to even sort of look and go, oh, this went better than we thought. Let's make an adjustment, or this isn't going where the way we thought we would. You know, let's that that we have a little bit more um, agility, I guess, to kind of adjust within that monthly release kind of schedule, as opposed to something that only comes out once or twice a year with a more traditional kind of book publishing model. And again, Mm -hmm. they're all they're all things I enjoy. I like being able to do the different stuff. There's times when you finish a run on a book, you know, and, and it does feel like you just finished the marathon and you sort of collapse in exhaustion. You go, that was cool. Let's not do that for a bit. You know, (laughs) vacation sounds like a good idea. This is cool. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I assume you're taking your work everywhere you go just because of uh, the two sides of the business that you're on. Right
1: yeah yeah you get used to you know before the pandemic stuff i was doing a lot of travel we're slowly easing back into it this year is going to be pretty aggressive in terms of locations it also depends on what you're working on like when i was writing avengers you know at marvel obviously that at that time the movies were coming out so i was co-writing avengers during both infinity war and endgame and so of avengers is everywhere and so you your ability to travel to countries you've never been to before or to have those kinds of experiences uh was totally it was amazing it was just the the coolest thing and now you know conan is a really global property and the new conan series is going to be coming out i think six languages total and so again you know the ability to go to different places and and have some of those experiences and some of the offers we're getting for international trips is, uh, is really cool. And so I want to be able to take advantage of that stuff, but it means you've got to either build out your schedule ahead of time, or you get used to writing in airports, you write in hotels, you write kind of wherever the work needs to be done. And there's a, there's a discipline attached to that, that this is writing time. You know, I was talking to, um, I teach at an art college here in Toronto, and I was talking to my students and, and we were talking about the difference between a hobby and, you know, a career. I love cooking, for example. I love to cook. It's something that really the last few years I have poured a lot of myself into. It's a great thing that I, I, my wife knows to buy me kitchen gadgets now. And it's very easy to, to, I want to make really cool food, but I get to choose when I pour a lot of time into that. Do you know what I mean? Like if I just want to make a crappy little dinner, no one's paying for that at a restaurant and expecting the best from me. The days when I want to lavish a stupid amount of attention and ingredients into making a really cool dish for my wife and I, that's a bonus. That's a hobby. That's a fun thing to do. But writing is the job. And so obviously I am passionate about it and I want to do it to the highest level possible. But on the days I still don't feel like doing it, I still have to do it. Like like that's the key there. I, you have yeah. to hit a baseline no matter what. And then you hope that you have enough time to always elevate it to the best it can be. Um, and that's the difference when you decide this is the career as opposed to the fun thing that I do when I feel like doing it.
0: Yeah. Is it easy for you to turn it on and turn it off throughout the day? Do you have like set times? This is when I do it. And then I try not to touch it again after a certain time or is that hard? Yeah,
1: I, I try to be pretty, you know, focused with it because the, the variety of of challenges coming at you, whether you're doing a proofing day or a story planning day or a research day or a scripting day, it's always a little bit different. So I can't just say, oh, it's a nine to five kind of thing, especially when you're working with artists in different time zones. (laughs) Like you get messages at weird hours and you're sort of like, well, it is middle of the day in Spain. So I guess I better, you know, like (laughs) better pull that reference together for them or whatever. So it's different in that sense. Um, I've gotten pretty good. No one's perfect. You always have days when it's, it's flowing better and days when it's not. If I've got the outline in mind and I've been like building up anticipation, like, Oh, I know this scene's going to be awesome. I can't wait to get it on the page. Obviously it's a heck of a lot easier. And sometimes it pours out of your fingertips and other times you got to kind of grind, but I better now than I think I've ever been about being able to block it out and kind of go, this is whatever four hours worth of you know work. This is gonna take me two hours or this is gonna take all weekend or this is gonna take, you know, whatever. So I'm not promising stuff that I can't deliver. You know, and and my wife also knows if I've got this like, okay, I'm shutting the door to the office, like I am hyper focused, like we're on, I'm on deadline. This is intense. We got to do the thing. And it's not to say that, you know, there's always stuff that gets in the way of your schedule, but it's also about when you work from home, your friends and family can sort of be like, oh, it's not like a real job. And you're like, oh, it is such a real job. And there's flexibility to it. It's not always nine to five, but you still need to block out those hours. And if you're not doing them here, then you're going to have to give them elsewhere. And so you need to know that that's that's the commitment that it's going to take. And when it goes easier and it comes together faster and you're done a little early for the day, you're like, awesome, that's a bonus, you
0: know? yeah one of the great things and i guess this happens through a lot of comics but reading conan what i really love are these kind of short story arcs of like Ooh, you know four you. or five issues yeah. i love it because it's self-contained mm-hmm. i feel like i could capture the essence of each of those stories because it's it's not like 12 issues where then i forget what happened in right. issue one and two um i, I love that I think
1: it's It's a strength of the character, absolutely. That you look at in the Mm seventies, most of the stories were done in ones or two parters, three parters at the most. They have ongoing threads and plot lines. Yeah, man, absolute (laughs) classic. Devil's Beast. Yeah, got it. And it's like that stuff. It made for a really easy uh, entry point for any new reader. You know, people tell me they go, "Oh man, how do I start on Conan?" And I go, "It's easier than any superhero book, because all you need to know is." The, yes, there is uh, history and all sorts of stuff to the Hyborian Age, but you don't need to know any of that. All you need to know is Conan is a wanderer, and he's a survivor. And wherever he goes, awesome stuff is going to happen. You're like, really? That is it. That is the baseline. <laughs> yes, there is. Someday he becomes a king by his own hand, and there is the Hyborian Age, and there is a geography to that, and there is a history to these peoples you don't need to know any of that to start reading just start with this guy look this cover looks awesome this adventure (laughs) looks amazing he's gonna get in trouble and fight his way out and there are deeper themes about civilization and savagery and history and brutality and all these other things at the heart of robert e howard's character there's a reason why he has lasted for 90 years worth of prose publishing and now over 50 years worth of comic publishing but none of that stops you from just coming in the door none of that is an impediment to to you know just jumping in and enjoying the latest story that's what's so great about it
0: you know what i find too as a reader of conan is and i want to be careful how i say this because it's not negative but there's a little bit less fluff in issues like when you have an ongoing and you know it's 20 issues to tell a, a story arc Once in a while, you'll get kind of in a lull it reading in between that. I think that's just very normal. It happens in every title. But when you have these small three, four, five issue, it's so jam packed. And I feel like I read through it and I'm like, did I just read all those issues already? It goes that fast. And that's one another, I think, attractive thing about Conan too. I
1: think it's it's really in the tradition of the original prose stories. You know, the original Robert E. Howard Conan stories, there's 21 stories. One of them is i think considered a novelette and the rest are short stories you can sit them sit down and read them in in one go they were in the pulps they were in weird tales magazine it was meant to be quick awesome explosive entertainment and so that's kind of our job in the tradition of this character give you your money's worth every month give you action-packed cool entertainment and excitement and then there is a bit of philosophy running underneath the current of it or there are larger kind of themes going there but on a month to month basis, like we're going to earn our cover price with cool, you know, action and, and building up to those set piece kind of moments that I think people really remember about the book. And so in that way, it's never easy because you obviously want to keep pushing in terms of quality, but it's easy in that broader sense of I know what our goals are. Like mm. I know we need to make like a cool survival story. I need to put Conan in situations ideally you haven't quite seen before and and make it as bombastic and intense as humanly possible and summon up that feeling that you got you know if you were a longtime reader of the series in the classic kind of era or for a new reader prove to you why you know this character is still viable in the here and now
0: yeah does that make it easier or harder as a writer though because like I know, you said you made a, a comment that you're like three months ahead of schedule, right? Um, in, at certain processes throughout there. But as sure. far as these little four, three, four part, like, are you like a year out where you kind of have a, a rough I mean, draft the of God like
1: plan? The nice thing now is that when I signed on to do the relaunch at Titan, Heroic Signatures is actually the people I work for, and they're the rights holders of Conan. And that's another part that makes this particular series pretty unique normally with a character like this it's a licensing deal and so you're working with the editorial of the publisher and then they're sending everything to the license holder and then the license holder gives feedback and here it's a much more direct kind of line i'm talking to the rights holders directly in meetings at least once a month and we're excitedly planning out for a very long future on the book they are much more directly involved than they've ever been at any point in the character's comic publishing history. And so there's less people I have to convince this is the right direction. And I can sort of lay out this really long-term plan and know that, that they're on board for it, that we're all really excited for it. So it's like in the immediate short-term, the arc I'm working on, or because I was two art teams uh, both Doug Braithwaite and Rob De La Torre are drawing, you know, different arcs of the book. I work on those two arcs simultaneously in a very immediate fashion. But then we're planning out where are things going to be a year from now, you know? And so I know obviously clear through 2024 where we're at, most of 2025, I've kind of got built uh, at least in the broad structural way, like these things need to happen and these are the kind of bits. And sometimes that's as simple as okay we need we've done a bunch of big crazy mythic stuff we need a, a two-parter kind of palette cleanser just like a not low-key it's still going to be super fun and entertaining but we don't need to do the big 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 movements of of gods and demons and all that kind of stuff um do you ever watch the x-files back in the day oh yeah you know, the episodes that were like the long term i forget what they called them they were like the the conspiracy episodes, right? The ones that tied into the big alien conspiracy. And sometimes it was cool monster of the week. And that yeah. was fun too, breaking <laughs> it up with those kind of unexpected little supernatural hits gave you a really good, you know, episode of television and you were thoroughly entertained and you were off to the next thing. I feel like that with those shorter ones, like that we can do. And and right now we're doing these four part arcs, very kind of controlled, but in year two, we're going to move into two parters and the occasional one-off. It gives us the chance to tell different kinds of stories that are valid for the character. And it gives me the chance to kind of, because these are being told out of order, Conan's career is this expansive sort of thing. We can jump to an earlier version of the timeline where he is young and impetuous and sort of testing his limits, or we can play to him closer to, you know, when he's the leader of men and, and leading these armies, or man, he's the king by his own hand and what does that mean to be in that kind of twilight era of your life and look back at your career and that we are not trapped in one space or that we have to move in absolute order and tell every single story this character is iconic for a reason we're never going to be able to fill in all the gaps that's the whole point you know
0: that's awesome that's incredible well i appreciate you sharing all of that I, I was kind of wondering and <laughs> will it be um de la torre and
1: uh um
0: doug and, and doug, yeah. Doug
1: Braithwaite. yeah
0: exactly will so, they will they be the two artists moving forward that kind of go back and forth there could be others too right
1: so those are the two arts that we've got for through our first four arcs so oh, gotcha. doug has signed on to do arc four which we're thrilled about because he's doing yeah he's a killing a job yeah. on Thrice marked for death which is our second arc rob's currently uh, you know bulldozing his way through arc three so arc three and four are locked in we are currently looking at how arc five and six are going to play out rob definitely wants to do so savage sort of conan is coming back yes. size black and white magazine and one of rob's dreams is to do a, a large black and white story and so we need to free up his schedule in order to block out a big black and white and i want to write it and we're going to put this thing together where exactly that falls in terms of our schedule and timeline that's going to be still to be figured out it's it's getting figured out kind of in the weeks ahead and so at some point rob steps off the monthly book to do this bigger black and white epic and so we will have another artist step in i would love to have doug stay on board yeah. Um, he's been phenomenal, he's an incredible collaborator, and so my job right now is making sure that ARC 4 is so good that he just wants to stay. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of where my head's at with it. And we've got other artists that we're working with on Savage Sword and other, you know, variant covers and things like that. And so there's a, a bunch of people that we might um, spin into the monthly book, depending on how that goes. We've also got comic day this year is going to be uh the kind of prequel chapter of an event that we're playing together called battle of the blackstone which builds off of bound in blackstone and the other stuff that we've been doing in the monthly book and the artist on that is jonas Sharf, and he is amazing he's doing the free comic day issue coming out in may and he's going to be doing a four issue mini series for this event and so he's already drawing that we do have a killer lead time for that and he is just doing a phenomenal job so i feel like it's like all conan all the time because I've got yeah these, like,
0: it sounds like it conan i mean it's pretty exciting working
1: on, on multiple stories i've also got a, a savage sword story that richard pace is drawing so if you want to get it's like four different conan stories that are like circling me at various stages of production and I couldn't be happier. It's exactly yeah. where I want to be. Uh, I'm having an absolute blast with it. And all my collaborators are awesome. You know, Richard just drawing this cool, visceral survival story. Jonas is doing this very pulp-inspired um, mythic story that I think is going to knock people out. Obviously, Rob's already proved his bona fides on the first arc. Everyone is oh. pumped for him to be back. His art and is so incredible, man. Issue nine. And then Doug. Doug is like an absolute veteran who's telling one yeah, of right, yeah craziest, most visceral stories yeah. possible. In
0: he started years. in, in uh, five, right? The first That's right yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. It's so good. I can't it's go wrong with any
0: of those installers. guys, right?
1: I mean, all of them. I, I, so I feel so um, fortunate to be paired with such amazing collaborators. And they're so giving and they're so exci- excited to do the work. You know, Richard Starkings, our letterer, is one of, he's a legend in the business. And he's bringing that old school flair to the lettering in the best way possible, you know, hundred uh, like Dean White and uh, everyone, you know, editorial, we've got, you know, Chris Butera and we've got Ashley and Fred and Jay in the office. Like the whole team is motivated and pumped in a way that um, I just, I've worked on all sorts of really cool stuff. This momentum right now feels extra special. And yeah. so I'm really trying to not just do the work, but also kind of relish this kind of feeling right now and you hope that it never ends yeah. because it's the kind of place that you want to be in as a creator where the fandom's responding and the retailers are excited and you're pumped to do the book and you're like man i i wish i could bottle this you know <laughs> at this moment because it's so cool yeah
0: yeah you know I, <clears throat> every year i do my top 10 comics and uh even though it was a short run at the time, it was in my top 10 because it was that good. Oh, thanks, man. And then as I went through other YouTube videos of everybody else doing their top 10, mm-hmm. it was on so many people's top 10, Jim. Yeah. It's incredible <laughs> how excited people are about it's this run. Yeah. You know,
1: it's that weird thing where I love seeing people's excitement for the book. And I'm not, you don't write it for critics. You don't write it for, you got to write the book that you believe in. But the fact that people are responding to it and they're responding to it so viscerally and so excited, I think is, it does charge your batteries. You can't help but feel good about it. You know, um, I've done a handful of conventions since the launch last summer and every show I've been to, I've got fans coming with stacks of those Conan books and their enthusiasm is infectious, like they are just so pumped. And whether they've been a longtime reader, like I've got people, you know, old enough to be my, my dad or my uncle, and they're coming to me and they're like, this is really awesome. Like they've got this fanboyish excitement. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God. And then I've got brand new readers who have never read the book before. And they're like, You know, people told me I got to buy the Conan book and now I'm hooked and I got to, what should I be reading from the old stuff? And it's wonderful to be able to, you know, turn their attention back to the source material or to some of my favorite runs from, you know, years past. Because it's the thing that motivated me, you know, when I was a kid and when I was a comic collector and um, it feels awesome. It just feels so cool to be in that space right now.
0: Yeah, I've, I've heard you speak a few different times, and I watched your TED Talk, which was awesome. Thanks. But uh, it seems like that this fantasy realm or genre has played a big role in your life, um, from Dungeons & Dragons, which you, you had a, an amazing TED Talk on, and then obviously you've been involved with Dungeons & Dragons for many years. But even Conan, did, did you read Robert E. Howard at a, a young age, or when did you first get exposed to Conan and then I some don't... of these other fantasy properties?
1: I mean, I was really young, so it's hard for me to put a pin in which yeah. ones came first. My older brother was, he's always kind of been my, um, when I was young, he was my, my inspiration in the sense that whatever he was into, you know, you want to be like your older brother. You want to be like your older siblings and, and kind of get along with them and whatever. He was a voracious Prose reader, he read a ton of sword and sorcery. He actually read a lot of sci-fi, and I kind of bounced off most of that. But the sword and sorcery stuff I loved, and we got into Dungeons and Dragons together, and you know we were collecting comics together. And so, very much his taste and the things that he liked, I was a lot of it. I was kind of of soaking up and just kind of marinating in it. And he had the Lancer paperbacks of Conan the Barbarian, so those were the ones that are Robert E. Howard stories but they were re-edited and in some cases rewritten by El um, Sprague de Comp and Lynn Carter. And some of those stories are good and some of them are, are kind of wonky, but the original Howard prose really punches above its weight class and it's so, so good. And those Frazetta covers are iconic for a reason, right? And so those stuck with me. We saw obviously the Conan movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And even though it's not a good pure adaptation of the books, the excitement and the adventurous quality and the danger and the iconic kind of nature of it makes it so it casts a huge shadow in terms of pop culture for good reason and so you mix that together with our obsession with D&D and the kind of adventure that they do in the Conan stories like to me Dungeons and Dragons is not high fantasy colorful explosive it's much more kind of mysterious and we're a group of thieves or we're a a pack of adventurers going in way over our head, deep into these, you know, labyrinthian tunnels and whether, can we, you know, fight our way out? Can we get through these traps and deadly things? And even if we don't understand the bigger, you know, cosmic forces at work, we're going to get this treasure. We're going to get through this danger. That's always been very intrinsic to kind of classic D&D to me. And so that's Conan. You know, when you think of Tower of the Elephant, or you think of God in the Bowl, or those mm-hmm. old school stories, those are capers, and those are, you know, Conan as a thief and Conan as a as a cutthroat or a, a mercenary. Those are the kind of stories that really informed me, and the survival and the kind of dark danger aspect of it was at the heart of what I thought those stories, why they worked for me. You know, and so you see a lot of that in my fantasy storytelling characters in over their heads and characters on their back feet and characters who, who have ticked off demons and gods and they have no idea, you know, why or what's going on their immediate survival or their immediate goals are the things that drive them, you know, their flaws and their, their foibles and their interactivity. That's the stuff that I love about fantasy is, is the great unknowns, the survival kind of quality mm-hmm. that the map is unfinished. You know, in a sci-fi world or in kind of modern technology, we have mapped every, you know, mile of the earth. We know where a lot of things are. We've answered tons of questions with science. And that is amazing. And me as a, you know, person living in the modern era, I deeply appreciate all that stuff. But in terms of adventure and myth and storytelling, I love the unknown. I love the characters can't just pick up a cell phone and call for help you're in deep and you don't know if you're ever going to get out you know yeah, yeah. yeah
0: maybe conan 2099 maybe he'll have a cell <laughs> phone <laughs> right
1: but this is the thing is that I, what, what's amazing <laughs> about a character like conan is that it is iconic in that broader sense that if you say the word barbarian yeah everyone sees that character yeah he is the superman of sword and sorcery he is the originator he's the template that everyone if you are not using a character like conan then you are purposefully playing against type do you know what i mean he's yeah. the template so either you are using a conan like character or you're purposefully avoiding the the template in order to say something mm-hmm. and that by its own nature the absence of it is your acknowledgement of it if that kind of makes sense do you know what absolutely I mean? yeah like if you choose to make a superhero Do they fly like Superman? Do they have a cape like Superman or do they not? You know, and that's kind of the, we're trying to not be Superman or we're trying to be more like Superman or we're trying to explore these qualities of Superman. That tells you that that character is the template of the genre. And Conan is very much that in the sword and sorcery space, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I just got done watching, I think it's 1983, 86, The Fire and Ice. Frank Rosetta, yeah.
1: Yep, the Bakshi animated cartoon exactly
0: yeah, it's incredible that, the, the Fraze- how that was at that time right it's incredible oh my god the yeah.
1: the Frazetta's imagery is yeah. so powerful and the posing is so intense they don't it's not um the highly rendered kind of photo referenced sort of artwork it is this explosive gestural you know, action storytelling It is more than real life. And that's the whole point of it. And, you know, part of our job is trying to find in the comics, the kind of storytelling that feels that way, that these characters are not superhuman, but we push them to the absolute limits. Conan can be injured. Conan can, you know, he could die. This yeah. is bad news. It's not super heroic invulnerability, you know, and how far can you sort of push that yeah. while still having this, insane over the top kind of dramatic air to
0: it yeah that's incredible now as far as you know growing up you have the fantasy side with Dungeons and Dragons Conan um when did like superheroes become more of your life
1: so my brother and I were um we started collecting comics like you know whatever you read Garfield in the newspaper and stuff like that but actual like buying the comics we watched the the spider-man cartoon and stuff like that and i started buying the gi joe comic series you know the classic one um larry hama's uh, amazing run on on gi joe and it felt so much cooler than the toys and the cartoons because there were characters like dying and big crazy military stuff happening and in the 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 gi joe issues of course they'd have ads for other comics and stuff and so my brother started collecting superhero stuff he was started collecting x-men and i started collecting spider-man and that was sort of it like from there we started to branch out and get other books in the marvel universe i would occasionally buy hulk or fantastic four as the mutant books kind of expanded rapidly my brother was buying x-factor and wolverine and all that kind of stuff and so it was very much like we dove in hard on the marvel universe because it felt like this really cool interconnected space And you got to buy Alpha Flight because I'm Canadian. So, of course, you're going to buy that. Of course. You know, all that kind (laughs) of stuff, right? And so um, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe was really transformative to us because obviously the original stories were all being done by freelancers. And a lot of those guys were just making stuff up on the fly. But the official handbook had this encyclopedic quality to it where it made it, it read like it was all part of a continuous story, like it was meant to be and that they were interconnected. And nowadays you've got you know digital archives and trade paperbacks galore, but back then you didn't. And so in many cases, uh, a really old issue that was formative to a character's origin or to key moments in their story, you would never get to read those stories. You would hear about them in little flashback panels, and it would tell you with the little asterisks and the caption, you know, see Fantastic Four number forty-nine, you know, first appearance of Silver Surfer or something. And so because you couldn't just read them, you couldn't just pick them up and read them, it had an almost mythic quality. It was like someone told you. And then back in the day, Galactus showed up and it was a really big deal. And you're like, man, that issue is up on the, it's hundreds of dollars and it's on the back issue board at the comic shop. I'll never be able to buy it. I'll never be able to read it, but it happened. It's yeah. like someone told you ancient history and it's so cool. <laughs> and the, and the, the Handbook of the Marvel Universe was this encyclopedia that told you all the cool things. And so it felt like you were part of this amazing, ongoing, you know, fictional universe that was ever moving forward. And you don't really remember the stinkers. You just remember the hits. You just remember the stories that knocked you out and the artists that blew your mind. And uh, it was really cool. It was really special to us. And so when I finally got the chance to start writing in the Marvel universe, that was one of the coolest experiences because you were like, you get to add some bricks to the house of ideas. You know, you get to to build on this foundation that has, that has been and acknowledge that and then try cool things out and make new characters. The first time I made a character and they showed up, I mean, they're not in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe because they don't publish that as a book anymore. But even the Marvel Wiki, like literally the week after we made something and it was referenced on the Wiki and you're like, oh, that's part of the Marvel Universe now oh, that's addictive. I, I got to do more of that. You know, I got to make more stuff and, and hope that people you know like it and, and acknowledge it and remember it. And that you're playing this kind of constant um, marathon where someone runs with the baton for a while with the character and then they hand it off to you. And now you got to sprint like hell and do cool things with them. And then you got to hand it over to someone else. And you hope that you do a good enough job that future writers will reference what you did. Mm. and be excited to build on that as much as possible you know yeah
0: at what point did you realize that you wanted to be a comic book writer professionally like did you yeah, kind of ease into it and then it just happened or you knew right away this is what I want to do and that's what all you pursue it
1: was not it was not the plan when I was a child my original <laughs> plan was to be um an animator so I went to school for art I I uh to classical animation training, like hand-drawn Disney-style animation. And the reason why is because I there was a school outside of Toronto that specialized in animation, um, and there were a bunch of Canadians who had worked in animation, and I would see the dozens of names in the credits, and, and it felt like a very reasonable dream. I don't know, that sounds weird, but like, yeah. I could be one of those. I could be the name that just goes whiffing by. Maybe one of the <laughs> lead, artists at some point but you never really think of i didn't think of myself as the author of a book or something like that that felt to me growing up you know you would read about whatever the people that worked at marvel and they were all either new yorkers right or they were brilliant british people and i'm like i'm not a, a i'm not neil gaiman or alan moore and i'm not in new york city so this just doesn't even seem humanly possible the first time i ever got a comic book signed and i found out that the creator was canadian i was just like what like that's a job someone could have you know some kid you remember who it was uh the first one i ever got signed was ken stacy he's a canadian artist and he had done the cover and a story in an issue of marvel fanfare and Mm. i still have that in a box somewhere I got to tell him that many years later, that he was the first autograph I ever got. And he was very kind. Uh, It was very, very nice, you know, but even then, even getting that book signed, it wasn't like, this is going to be my job. I thought, Oh, I'm going to, I'll be a Disney animator and maybe I get to move to California or Florida or something. And I'll contribute to these films because I love animation and I love that art form as well. Um, And I worked in animation out of school for a few smaller companies and I did some TV animation stuff. And, you are a big part of a huge kind of system, but until you get a lot of experience, you are not going to have any control of the story. You are just a tiny cog in this big machine and you're producing artwork. And I enjoyed aspects of it and I loved working in the studio, but I realized very quickly, I had no creative input. Like here's the set designs and here's the story we're tying and someone else wrote the script. and you're storyboarding it or you're animating it or you're drawing the backgrounds for this thing. And there's already a set show style. And maybe if you keep at this for five, six, 10, 15 years, you might be the person to set the style. You might be the person to write the script, but not out of school. That's not happening. And I was like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. Of course. But I I've got a bunch of ideas. I want to do things. And so, um, I had looked at potentially doing a comic because I was like, that is something I could do as an individual or as a small group and that we could get it done. And so I did a web comic. I started doing a web comic back in 2001 and I literally figured out how to hand code HTML and make my own little website. And I just started posting stuff up. I had moved away from home for one of my first animation jobs. And so I had a bunch of spare time in the evenings. I didn't have a lot of friends yet. And I just started making uh, this little web comic. And it updated three times a week. And I was teaching myself kind of the discipline of doing it, comic book storytelling. um, And and a tiny audience was responding to it, the friends and family. But then other people were stumbling across it as well. And the regularity of that was very addictive and very interesting. And my ability to make choices creatively and storytelling-wise was really cool. And even then, I still didn't look at this like, this is going to be a job like it had a hobby-esque quality to it. That thing I was saying before about being the chef, I didn't have to do the web comic, you know, I could stop at any time. Um, It wasn't paying the bills. And so I ended up um, working for a while out in Alberta, and then the job there kind of crumbled and I moved back to Ontario and I was gonna go back to school originally to take 3D animation because I didn't learn any computer animation stuff and the whole industry had changed and i had some friends in video games and they were like oh learn the basics and then you can come work for us and i thought about doing that but i still loved the art and i love the storytelling aspect of it and so that summer before i went back to school a friend of mine offered me a spot at the udon studio and udon is uh, an art studio full of artists doing freelance work but they're also publishing comics they had just gotten the rights to do the street fighter comic series mm-hmm. and um them working on comics and seeing in the studio that game produced i was like oh yeah comics are the best like i love comics and i collect comics these guys are making the stuff like getting published oh, that would be cool that's really fun that's neat i i missed that a lot more than i thought after i'd wrapped up my webcomic stuff and we would get these projects that would come in from clients and most of them were just art projects we were doing design artwork for someone or or you know advertising artwork or illustrations or whatever but every so often a client would come in for the studio and they would be like, we need uh, a story and uh, we need a short, you know, comic that we're going to use for advertising or something like that. And I was like, I'll write it. Like I, I can do that, you know? And I would get these little projects where I would be the sort of pitch in writer on them. And just those tiny little stories, I was like, oh, I miss this. I'm having a lot of fun. And so I finally hit the point where one of the artists and I at the studio, we started working on our own kind of create our own comic series. And that became the impetus to like, no, you can do this. Like you really love doing this. This is the most fun you've had in years. This is the most enjoyable project. Whether or not this thing even makes money, this is way more of a, an important part of who you are than, you were, than you've realized, you know? And once uh, we launched this book, this is now, we're talking 2010, I launched Skull Kickers at Image. And for the first time, people were responding to me and my story. They were responding to my writing. And I started to get tethers and interest from other publishers that were like, oh, so you're a writer. Do you want to write stuff? And I was like, yes. And that just sort of took me over the top in terms of this is viable. I've got to keep doing this and and push harder and and see where I can take this. And once I got into a really good flow with it, started to do regular writing work. And then all of a sudden realizing I was doing more writing work than anything else. And I loved the collaboration. I have the art background. So when I talk to the artist in the scripts, I'm talking very visually. And when I'm giving feedback and we're talking about design or we're talking about roughs or page layouts, or I've kind of been part of that production process. And so I'm like, okay, I'm not just talking out of my ass like this is, you know, visually this this can work or you know giving feedback based on what we need to see on the page. It's been a really it it just seemed to work. It all seemed to come together properly. And now, you know, it's weird because I broke through this point where people don't remember that I ever drew. So if I'm at a convention, people will I'll have sketches that I'll do for people. I'll do, you know, sketch covers or or head sketches or whatever. I'm not producing full pages don't get me wrong but I can you know I can bust out something pretty good and people are like where did these come from and I go "Oh, I, I drew that And they go you draw too and I'm like I am not Doug Braithwaite I am not Rob De La Torre, and I would never put myself on that level but yeah I've got some art background I kind of know you know my way around that stuff and um yeah it all feels it, it's nice it's nice to have that you know vocabulary when it comes to art and all those other things And so it was a really organic process. It wasn't, I tell my students all the time, I am not living the career I thought I would when I was in art school, not even close. It's better. It's way better than anything I could have imagined because I imagined myself as, you know, animator number, serial number, you know, whatever, (laughs) fill in the blank. And now my name's on the cover of a book and I have a really direct control in terms of the creative path of that story and working with all these different licenses and clients. And I get to live, you know, where I want to live and do the stuff I, I want to do. And it's not perfect. No job is perfect, but I feel like I have much more of a, of, of a hand on the steering wheel in terms of the creativity and the the kind of stuff that I want to be doing, which is which is all you can hope for. yeah
0: i mean that that sounds amazing (laughs) Jim. that's incredible
1: it's pretty cool i never want to take it for granted i say that a lot as well like yeah you know every job has stresses every job has deadlines and difficulties but uh even on the worst days i'm still making comics and uh and there's people who are excited to read what i'm putting together and that feels extremely special
0: now um when you were at marvel and you were on avengers
1: Mm -hmm. you
0: were kind of sandwiched between a couple billion dollar plus movies. Yes. Yeah, what was that like one. writing for that title sure. during that time frame? And that had to have been like its own level of stress, I would think, just because so many eyes are on everything. I mean,
1: the weirdest part of it is, is that you know Marvel Comics publishing is slightly separated from the MCU stuff. You'll see reflections of stuff that's popular in the cinematic universe roll through the comics but in theory the comics are supposed to be the sharp tip of the spear they're coming up with the storylines that maybe turned into other things six seven ten years from now do you know what i mean and so our job was not to emulate what was happening exactly in the movie our job was to sort of extrapolate out cool things that we could do with the current marvel universe as it stands and the continuities are different and the characters are different obviously there's a lot of shared dna there and and sometimes the movie stuff will become so powerful and so iconic that you had to reflect it backwards like people don't remember that tony stark was not didn't have the kind of bravado and humor in the original comics in the 80s very much he was a very stern figure he was a tragic kind of figure and robert downey jr has permanently changed the personality of that character for the better i think you know on the whole um and so your job then becomes like, okay, how do we incorporate some of that DNA? How do we make the character feel like you could pick it up and read it at any point? But we're still telling the stories we want to tell. We're still moving the ball forward, ideally, as you go. There's extra eyeballs on the book. There's extra interest in the brand as a whole. And you need to use that to its maximum potential. You need to excite people and hopefully thrill them to the possibilities of, hey, read these comics. You know, In some ways the MCU is the most amazing thing and in other ways it's like, it's weirdly your competition yeah. because it used to be, if you were a fan of Captain America in the eighties, the only place you could consistently get a hit of Captain America was the comics. And so you're not really competing with much really in the grand scheme of things. Now you could be a Captain America fan and never touch the comics. You could yeah. have the t-shirts and the toys and the video games and the movies And that is a fulfilling fan base. And so you have to kind of justify your existence. You have to be like, no, this stuff is, this is the heart of the character. This is why you should be reading or whatever. And that's just, you know, one example, you could do that with any other character or any other team. And so, you know, it's neat. You're getting the shine of that thing for a time because of its bigger media exposure, but it's not yours, you know? Like when people are asking you about Avengers, they, a lot of them are, are bringing their expectations of movie stuff to you. You know, you're not palling around with Chris Evans. Like that's not happening. You are just working on this broader thing while this other stuff is happening, you know, and you're thankful that, that I no longer have to explain what I'm working on. You know, my mother knows who Rocket Raccoon is like, that's (laughs) insane. Like that, what I would think of as very obscure Marvel characters are no longer obscure because of marvel cinematic universe because of you know and concepts of storytelling multiverses and cosmic stuff that would have been deep dark nerdity you know in the 80s is now kind of commonplace that that is weird and amazing to me in the best way possible and Mm -hmm. so you you realize the benefit of that and you also realize that you are not the reason people are into that thing i mean that's fairly obvious And so you are benefiting from it for a time. And at some point you hand it back over and you go, it's not mine. You know, the baton goes to somebody else. And that's true of Conan. That's true of Dungeons and Dragons, Rick and Morty, Samurai Jack, whatever other stuff that I've worked on. Which is why the creator owned stuff is so valuable as well. That when I'm writing Skull Kickers or Wayward or Glitter Bomb or Stone Star, those would not exist if, myself and the creative team didn't put it together. And so when someone brings that book to you at a convention, they say, this is my favorite comic. Yeah, That washes over you in a very different way. Do you know what I mean? They're not bringing decades worth of their nostalgia. They're saying this thing fought its way to the top of the reading pile for them. And the only reason why it's there is because you know you came up with it. That is a very, very cool feeling. And it's hard to replace that. Don't get me wrong. Like, it's an absolute honor to work on Avengers and, you know, uh, Conan and all this other stuff. But I always want to have a creator-owned concept that I'm working on, whether or not I'm currently releasing stuff or I'm in development. Those things are very, very valuable to me because at the end of the day, they're the only things that are completely under my control, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, with that said, um, are you always... Working on something creative owned, even though it's not, we might not see it for a year or two, but you're constantly have a few ideas that are in your back pocket. Absolutely. And
1: sometimes they're just sort of bubbling in the background. Sometimes you've got a name or a concept or a theme or a location and you're sort of doing research or you're popping little pieces together and hoping that it all fits. Other times, you're actively looking for you know a collaborator and the earlier you bring in the artist on the thing the better because you want them to have their input it's not just my story it's our story Mm -hmm. Uh, the minute that you know steven and i started developing wayward he had certain visual things he wanted to do and expectations and ideas and i want to incorporate as many of those as possible it is not about me writing something and finding an art robot to reproduce it that is not the point know when people talk about ai and all this stuff it's like i don't i don't want to put the 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 tv dinner in the microwave and say i'm a chef you know i want to have that collaborative process i want to build something with people and that at the end of it we're all very proud of that end result because we have put ourselves into it you know as much as possible and so yeah i've got a bunch of different concepts that i'm sort of working on there's two that are definitely have got momentum Mm -hmm. uh but you never know this is what can be kind of funny about it you know like people ask me well why did you do wayward after skull kickers like what was the career plan there and you're like that was the one that got off the ground like that was the one that made it through the filters and we got a publisher and the art team was ready and we could make the budget work and the schedule work and so as much as you want to have a master plan for exactly where your career goes sometimes you go that we got wind on our backs right now, like pitch the sail and let's go. You know, this is where we're at. Oh, your schedule just opened up. You want to do a thing. And then you just suddenly, that becomes the most important thing on your schedule because the artist you've always wanted to work with has suddenly got a gap. And you're like, you just became my best friend. Like, let's go, you know? And so that's the organic side of it that I think people don't always appreciate that sometimes they look and they're like, oh, master plans. And you're like, to a point. Yeah. absolutely we just try and plan and then you know the plan gives way to reality and then you you make the best of what you got so
0: yeah, yeah. that's amazing now through your time um on like the big two is there a character <clears throat> excuse me a character or title that you're most proud of during that time um and is there a character that you wish you would have had an opportunity to write right. that you never and, had a chance
1: to and i you know Obviously the Avenger stuff is super special. The collaboration that we did with, you know, Mark Wade and Al Ewing and I on the weekly released book was such an explosive energy. And we had to generate so much stuff um, that you couldn't help but be, it was like a runaway, you know, train. It was so fun and so wild and so weird. And when you actually were able to pull it off, you were like, look what we did. This is <laughs> nuts. And so those are very, very special to me. Absolutely. I loved working on champions, you know, uh the young heroes of marvel i still feel like have tons and tons of potential that is unrealized and and needs to be you know those characters could be even bigger into the future if they're uh used well i um, trying to think i've done a couple batman stories and both the batman stories i've done i thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed and that character is so iconic that you can't help but feel like you've tapped into something really special with them and so that's the thing is like Every book, as I think about it, I can think of what made it special and yeah. what made it so cool. And, and you know, Thunderbolts was both my oh. first kind of incontinuity Marvel book. And then I got to do the Thunderbolts miniseries last year with, you know, Hawkeye and, and mm-hmm. the crew. And it's like, they're very different Thunderbolts books and they say different things about the Thunderbolts concepts. Awesome. What a cool experience to be able to do that and to build on that cool foundation. And so um, they're all, I know that's the, corny answer no
0: no i mean they're all
1: pretty special in their own way and the Mm -hmm. more as soon as you pick up those trades or you look back at that book or you're autographing one you look oh yeah man that was so much fun or this person that i got to collaborate with they went from just being like a freelancer to a friend and those are kind of the cool memories that that you can't fully appreciate you know the dungeons and dragons book was the first time that um in 2014 max dunbar and i worked together and now we've become really good friends we've worked on a half dozen projects together we'll chat on zoom calls you know every few weeks and we're just like love seeing that guy at the conventions love hanging out with him and so i can't look at the DD books without having all those cool feelings wrapped up True. in them because yeah. they represent to me the friendship that grew over the course of working on the the, the book right
0: yeah that's awesome, Jim. Well, Jim, I want to be super respectful of your time. We're at the hour mark. Um, I know uh, you're very busy. Can you yeah. give us just a, a quick, um, like a, an overview of your calendar this year from a
1: mm.
0: con standpoint? Are you going to be in quite a few places this year, you think? or
1: So we're still locking stuff down. The stuff that's been confirmed is I'm at Emerald City Comic Con. And so that's at it, end of February, crosses over into the, the first of March. Uh, I love that show. It usually is, Seattle's usually the kickoff to my convention season. And it's funny, you get to, New York is usually my last show. So that's October and then, you know, February, March. And it's funny, you get to October and you've done a crazy year and you're just exhausted and you're like, I could do with not seeing people for a while. Not because they're not wonderful, but you've done a bunch of shows back to back and you're traveling you're exhausted. I could use a break. And then you get to January, you get to February and you're like, I got to get back. I got to see people. I got to do things. And so just the two month, three month recharge period is so valuable. Um, and so we're in that energy right now. It's end of January. And I'm like, where are the people I got to go? I got to see my friends, you know, zoom calls are not enough or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so Seattle's going to be really fun because it always feels big and bombastic, but still very much about comics. A lot of friends are going to be there. A lot of chances to hang out with people and it'll be good. Uh, I'm doing two shows back-to-back in Wisconsin because that's where Dungeons & Dragons was originally made. Oh, yeah. And it's the 50th anniversary. So I'm doing a show called um, Founders and Legends and then another one called Gary Con that's actually put on by the Gygax family who helps oh, wow. you know, create D&D. And so that's going to be really fun. It's going to be all these RPG freelancers and old school artists hanging out and celebrating 50 years of you know, the original role-playing game. so i'm really pumped for that i'm like kind of going as a guest but kind of going as a big fanboy, and i just want to like (laughs) some of these people are my friends but there's a bunch of people i've never met before so i'm really looking forward to kind of meeting them and trying not to be a big dork but also kind of a nice
0: change of pace though to be in that position i think yeah it's
1: gonna be a lot of fun um trying to line up some other stuff there's a robert e howard kind of little book festival that i'm going to be doing in texas in june we're just finalizing plans on that probably going to be at san diego comic-con Uh, you know, other spots like that. And then we'll sort of see, I'm going to be in Calgary, I'm going to be in Toronto, uh, probably Chicago. Yeah, just sort of nailing down those dates at this point.
0: Yeah, it sounds like most of the big ones you'll be at possibly. Yeah, Yeah, yeah,
1: I'd like to get overseas. And so we're looking at possibilities in and around that. So if an overseas show, you know, drops us a line and there's a plane ticket across the ocean, then my wife and I are probably up for that, and yeah. you know, do some Why not? <laughs> travel, right, exactly. I would think the UK, right?
0: You you have to do a show or two at okay, the I mean, Titans been, in the right? UK,
1: yeah. And uh, there's there's at least two big shows in London over the course yeah. of the year, and then you know now that Conan's going to be in, Panini's doing I think five languages. So, I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be French, German, Spanish, Italian. Portuguese if I'm not mistaken mm. so all those markets are possibilities going forward depending on the publishing schedule
0: yeah well, that's awesome Jim well I, I hope uh I live close to San Diego so if you're in San Diego man I, I'll make sure I bring my my stack for you man please do.
1: please do it's an absolute pleasure I would be thrilled to sign them up for you and yeah uh, I appreciate really that. look forward to seeing fans over the course of the year and hope yeah. that people are checking out what I'm doing if you Absolutely. want to find out what I'm up to, my yeah. website is just jimzub.com. So J-I-M-Z-U-B.com. Yep. You can sign up for my Zubstack newsletter where I talk about what's going on. That's right. The Zubtails <laughs> is my website. Yeah. Um, all my social media is linked there. Yeah. You know, reviews and previews and all sorts of funky stuff. I also have a YouTube channel where I'm doing, um, I've got tutorials about how to write comics and what it's like working in the business. So if people enjoy that kind of stuff, it is free there to check out as well. Awesome. That's the, the long and the short of it.
0: I love it, Jim. Well, big fan of uh, all your work, Jim. Thank, thank you so you. much for spending some time with me today. And I hope this isn't our last time. I'm hoping when there's uh, some kind of news, uh, we could have you back on again.
1: That would be great, man. Thank you. And thank you for the support. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Have a great week. Take it easy. <laughs> all right. You too.